All right, everybody, we're going to get started. If you could find your seats, please. It's good to see all of you. Welcome back to Sunday School. It's been a couple of weeks since we've had it, but I'm looking forward to getting back into covenant theology. But before we begin, uh, let's go before God in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you teach us um, all that we need to know about who you are and about what you've done. And as we open up your word, as we look uh, to see what you've done in the past with Abraham, we pray that you would bless us, that you'd guide the meditations of our hearts, that every thought would be held captive to Christ, that we might be transformed in every area of our lives as we learn about you. pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we've done Covenant Theology, so I just wanted to do a quick recap um, of where we are. So we talked about covenants in general, and we talked about the covenant of works with Adam uh, before the fall. And then we talked about the covenant of grace after the fall in Genesis 3.15. And then we talked about um, the Noahic covenant in Genesis uh, 6-9. through We talked about how this covenant was a covenant of common grace. Right? God didn't make just a covenant with Noah. He said, I will make this covenant with you and with your offspring and with all the, plant, with all the beasts of the earth. All of creation, right? God has made a covenant wherein he promised to never again destroy the world with a flood and that he would uphold the world uh, by continuing times and seasons and days and weeks and years. Um, and in that that scope of life, right, now that we know that the world has been established for uh, the covenant promises that he made in Genesis 3 to be fulfilled, we're waiting. We now know that God is doing something. We're waiting to see, okay, so where is this seed going to come from? Who is this seed going to come from? That was promised back in Genesis 3. Um, and then God says in verse or chapter 12 of Genesis, he brings Abraham onto the scene, and he makes this covenant with Abraham. Um, can anyone tell me what the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant promised? What did God promise in the Abrahamic covenant? A seed. Did he? A seed. Okay, a seed. Specifically, though, he promised something else that implies a seed, but he's promised something bigger, actually. Offspring. Offspring. And a land. land. How many offspring? Lots. Right? Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots. Um, But he also promised a land. Right? Were there any other promises in the Abrahamic covenant? The whole earth would be blessed. The whole earth would be blessed. What else? I think there's actually two other things, or at least one other thing that God promised in the Abrahamic covenant. I'm looking at Genesis 12 if you want to turn there. Make his name great. And then there's one other thing that God promises. In Genesis 12. Right. So we have the promise of that I will make you a great nation. Right? I will bless you in this land. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So there's a lot there. God is promising a lot. What is God asking in return from Abraham? What is God asking in return from Abraham? He goes where God leads him. Okay. Which is an act of what? Faith. Uh, this is Genesis 15, verse uh, uh, 5 and 6. And God brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So that verse there that Paul brings out, that Paul talks about in Galatians, right? That Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So there's a contrast, right, between the covenant with Adam and the covenant with Abraham. covenant with Adam, Adam obeyed God. If Adam had obeyed God, it would have been counted to him as righteousness. For Abraham, it's he believed God, and that is counted to him as righteousness. So in other words, it is not works, it is faith. It is salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So this is a covenant of grace. But why did God give the Abrahamic covenant? Wouldn't it have just been enough to have Genesis 3.15? What's the purpose behind the covenant with Abraham? What do you think? starts to unpack grace and faith. Um, how, does, how does the Abrahamic covenant expand on the promises of Genesis 3? Is God promising more than he was promising in Genesis 3? Is he elaborating? Is he saying, actually in Genesis 3.15, no, forget that. Instead, we're going to do this. How do they relate? Jonathan, what do you think? God's saying that God's basically repeating Genesis. <clears throat> okay. How so? He, well, actually, I could catch up. So, one minute. He says that I will put enmity between you, your offspring and the woman's offspring. And if we look at it, the serpent has a straight line of trying to get Eve's line to forsake God and go to his side. And that's the enmity, and he succeeds quite a lot. And those people who are twisted are going to curse Israel. And People who are twisted, just not in a different country, are going to bless Israel and going to bless the return. You know, it, and there's still enmity between. We'll see more of the enmity later, because that happens when 
there starts to be even clearer a clear enmity between two two offspring of Abraham. You'll have Isaac and you'll have Ishmael, and there'll be enmity between the two. What I'm asking is, how does the Adamic, how does the promises of Genesis 3:15 and the promises of uh, the Abrahamic covenant, how do those relate? Um, here's what I'm trying to push at. Right. This is God saying, okay, he is, he is expanding the promise, but also starting to zero in on where this promise seed is going to come from. Right? Because the question, as humanity begins to propagate across the world, again, after the flood, the question is, okay, so where is the promise seed going to come from? Who is his lineage? Um, and we start to f- see, as God works throughout history, as he starts to narrow in, okay, it's going to be one of Abraham's sons. Okay, it's going to be one of the Israelites. Okay, it's going to be a, a son of David. It's going to be a Judite. Okay, it's going to be the son of Mary, of a virgin. It's going to be Jesus. Right? In a sense, God is, is zeroing in, all of scriptures is zeroing in on one event, and that's the incarnation and the death of Christ. But the Abrahamic covenant is, is showing us a fuller picture of what Genesis 3.15 means. It's, it's expanding it and drawing us closer into the promises. That what God is promising is not simply a seed who will beat the serpent, but a seed who will beat the serpent on our behalf and who will restore us and bless us, and that will be a blessing to all the world. That what God is promising is, through his actions, through what God is going to do, we're going to be numerous, there's going to be a land, there's going to be blessing, there's going to be greatness, there's going to be all these amazing promises that we will not earn. The only way that we will receive them is by believing God. And when we believe him, it's counted to us as righteousness. Um, So how do we know who's going to inherit these Abrahamic promises? Who does God say is going to inherit these promises? Specifically, the land, the offspring. What's the sign that God gives of covenantal inclusion? Circumcision. So in Genesis 17, the Lord says, here's the, here's the sign of my promises. It's circumcision. He says, God said, said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And he says in Uh, Verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So doesn't this, does this seem like a works-based condition to you guys? Is God saying, here's the one work you need to do in order to receive these blessings? Is that what God is saying? Brittany? No, because the circumcision doesn't, it doesn't really matter for anything. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't provide any tangible benefit other than as a sign. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more just a, 
Sure. Yeah, you could say it like this is a product of faith. Because if you believe the promises, right, you will be circumcised. If you reject the promises, if you reject circumcision, you are rejecting the promises. You're saying, I don't believe these things and I don't want to be circumcised. You're rejecting God. You're rejecting the promises and the inheritance. Um, Circumcision is an act of faith. It's not a works that gets you into the covenant because God will then say later uh, in the prophets, right, circumcise yourselves in the heart because the flesh is not the point. The flesh is a sign pointing to the deeper reality of your heart, uh, that your heart has been circumcised, meaning that you believe God, that you believe his promises, that you are like Abraham, that you are a son of Abraham, not simply by lineage, but by faith. And that's what Jesus says to the Pharisees, right? He says, you think that you're sons of Abraham because you have the lineage and you have the circumcision. But you're actually not. You are not sons of Abraham because you don't believe. Um, so that's Jeremiah 4.4, right? Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, it was always pointing to the deeper reality because circumcision did not automatically guarantee that you would inherit the promises. You inherited them through faith. And the covenant uh, promises were yours by faith. Um, So how do we fit in as Gentiles? Because I'm... Does circumcision... Is that how we become part of the covenant of Abraham? If we reject circumcision, have we rejected the covenant? very clear and Paul is very passionate about it and this was a huge controversy in the early church we read about in Acts about this controversy because the Jews were saying well the Gentiles if they want to inherit the promises they have to be circumcised because that's what scripture says and Paul says there's a different circumcision that we have it's a circumcision of the cross that the cross is our circumcision because we've been circumcised with Christ in his death Because that's what circumcision was pointing to. Circumcision was pointing to a bloody sacrifice for sins. It was not on itself a bloody sacrifice for sins. But that's what it was symbolizing. And so Paul will say, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Right? If you want to be an inheritor of the promises of Abraham, here's how you go about that. Believe in Jesus Christ and be baptized. Because if you are baptized into Christ and put on Christ, if you believe these promises, then you are Christ's and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
So what sets baptism apart from circumcision? Why do we get baptized then? How does that relate to circumcision? Because Paul just said, if you're baptized into Christ. Jonathan? Baptism and circumcision are similar because... Well, in the Old Testament, you were both baptized and then circumcised. Paul says that you need to circumcise your heart, not your body. You don't exactly need to do your body anymore. Baptism. Well, I'm not exactly sure, but I think that God begins circumcising your heart when you've been baptized. Okay. We can... I think you're you're kind of on the right trail, but not quite. What do what yeah, everyone else think? What do you think? How do circumcision and baptism relate? Matthew? Both are a sign of blind to the covenant. Mm-hmm. The blind sign is no longer necessary. Why not? They both are signs of the inclusion in the covenant, of being inheritors of the promise, but there's a difference, right? Circumcision was a bloody, a, a bloody sign because it was pointing forward to the cross. The cross is our bloody sacrifice, and because that has been accomplished, right, we don't need a bloody sign anymore. Now we have baptism. We have water, not blood. How is that significant? What does water represent in the Bible? Purification. Okay, that's one big one. Cleansing. There's another big thing that water represents. Judgment. So, think of the flood and the Red Sea. These are both pictures, as the New Testament says, of baptism. Uh, One is for the whole world. One of judgment. And the other, for the Red Sea, is one of cleansing. Even though it was also judgment for Egypt. But water is judgment, right? It's a, it's a picture of God's wrath descending. The, the waters are untamable. The waters are uncontrollable. You can't stop the tide. You can't stop the ocean. You can't stop the waters when they're rushing through and destroying everything. Um, similarly, God's judgment is related to water because he is the one who is in control of water. Right? So when Jesus came and calmed the storm and when he walked on water, it's a picture of him having power over water. That water was at his command. It was his tool of judgment. And so it's a, it's a warning, on the one hand, to be baptized with water. Because water represents judgment. Because baptism itself cannot save. Same thing with circumcision could not save. Instead, what was necessary was faith. And so baptism says, here are the promises that if you believe, you will be saved. If you don't, the waters will not spare you. But it's also a picture of cleansing. A picture of passing through judgment unscathed, like the Red Sea. Charlie? Is baptism necessary? Uh, For what? Just generally. In what sense, though? With regard to one's relationship to the church. Yes. It's absolutely necessary. 
I would say that if you're not baptized and you're choosing not to, that would be a red flag for me. Yeah, I think that opens up an interesting category with regard to it's a necessary work, but it's not a necessary work for salvation. And maybe drawing a delineation between things that we are called to do, that are obviously imperatives and commands, it's a command to get baptized, but that it's tempered by it being an act of obedience, not an act of reconciliation on our own part to the Lord. Well, think about circumcision itself, too, right? right? It was it was not necessarily simply an act of obedience. It was an act of faith. That's, you could... I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't disassociate the two. Like, true obedience isn't faith, right? My point being that you could be circumcised and be obedient and yet not be saved. You could circumcise yourself and not believe, you could obey on the externals, and yet your heart is not right with God. It's similar with baptism, right? You could be baptized and not saved. Yeah. And you could also be saved and not baptized. But baptism is an act of faith. If you come to the Lord and believe in Jesus Christ, you will want to be baptized. Same as if you believe in the promises of God with Abraham, you would circumcise yourself and your kids because you believe the promises. You believe God. Um, it's an act of faith, and yes, obedience, but it's driven by faith. That's the most important thing. And so, yes, I would say that baptism is is necessary in the sense that you should be baptized if you believe, but not for salvation, because it's not a work. It's an act of faith. Brett? I think it's also key to remember that baptism is done to us, and we don't do it, which is beautifully pictured in it for baptism. The child doesn't come up and obey. God baptizes the child and receives the child. And so we, I do think we should be super careful. Baptists use the language of baptism is an outward sign of my inward commitment. We use the language as it's a sign of God's promise that he places on us. And so it's not something we do in that sense. It's something we receive. Yeah, that's a good point. It is something we receive from God. It's not what we do for God. It's what God has done for us. I think it's similar with the supper, right? The supper is something that we receive, that God is doing for us and giving to us. Um, Yes, we obey and we respond, but at the same time, it's still God initiated, God led, God doing it. We're just receiving in faith. Jonathan? So, Pastor Brett might remember this. When I got baptized, I breathed out. You punched me. Is it possible to not be baptized, but still be a Christian? Like, is being baptized part of the church? Because, like, I did, like, you said that baptism with water is a sign, but... I didn't want to not be baptized because I didn't want to be baptized. I didn't want to be baptized because it was water. Yeah. <laughs> like, does it have to be water or could we use some other? Thing? You mean, like, could we use Gatorade? No, I mean, can it be something that is not a fluid? No, it needs to be a fluid because that's part of the sign. Right? That's, that's part of the sign of baptism is that it is baptism with water. Which doesn't itself save, but water is very important because it's the judgment and the cleansing. 
Baptism is a picture of passing through the waters of judgment, like Israel did through the Red Sea. But it's also a picture of being washed and having your sins washed away. So that's why Paul says in Titus, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Baptism as a sign is pointing to that washing by the Holy Spirit. And as a sign and seal, it is a seal of God's promises that if you believe, you will be saved. You will, be, you will pass through the waters of judgment unscathed, unhurt, because Christ has taken upon himself judgment. Um, so, no, someone can be a Christian and not be baptized. Say someone believes in God and then they, you know, they die five minutes later without having a chance to be baptized. Are they not saved because they weren't baptized? No, of course they were because you're saved by faith. But if someone's saved and wants to be part of a church, baptism, yes, is very important and necessary. So we, we tie church membership and baptism very closely. Um, you can't be a member of Reformation without being baptized. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, we have a little bit of time left. And there's one thing that I wanted to talk about. It's, it's a reflection that I've, that I've had on the Abrahamic Covenant that I hope is just kind of helpful bringing us in our current life. Um, you know, 2023 and all the, the things that we've encountered the last few years. Hopefully bringing it into our, our lives. So I've been, I've been thinking about the promises that God made to Abraham and why they're so significant. Obviously, the offspring is very important, the blessings, having a great name. But there's one blessing that God gives that we tend to skip over because we're on this side of history. And so it's not quite, it doesn't quite hit as hard for us as I think it did for Abraham and for Israel. And that's the blessing of the land. And the reason I want to talk about this is because, not because it's the most important thing. I don't think this is, hey, we all need to think about this as, this is the promise that God makes. No, it's not. But I think it's overlooked for us as we look back on it on this side of history. Uh, because we're starting to feel culturally and in the world... The tensions, the movement, there's a shift happening as people are starting to realize that the promises that they've been believing the last 50 years are failing. Right? And we're now in a time of history where people are looking for solutions. They're looking for something to ground themselves. Um, I think we saw this with COVID. Right? How many people left the cities? A lot. A lot. Why did they leave cities? Because there's a concentration of people there. Right, but it shows that they are dissatisfied with it. That they were, the only reason these people were staying in the city was because they were tied to a job. Right, but as soon as remote work was a possibility, people fled the cities in droves. New York City became a ghost town for a while. I think part of that reason is because for the last 50 years, people have been believing this promise that the urban and suburban lifestyle is, that's it, right? That's the goal, is to achieve that sort of um, go to the city, all the hustle and bustle. There's, there's infinite amount of things to do and possibilities and freedom and mobility. The suburban lifestyle, right? That picket fence, having that nice car, that nice house in the suburbs, right? All these promises that we've been believing as a culture, not talking about necessarily you and me, 
but these cultural things that people have been believing are starting to fail. Look at Portland and Seattle. Are these cities that people want to live in? Not really. People are feeling that something is is deeply broken about these places. And so a lot of people are either fleeing the cities and going into the countryside or into smaller towns. Um, But I think we're also starting to see that people are beginning to realize the urban promise was you can have a lifestyle of freedom and mobility and anonymity without commitment. You can have all the things you want without commitment. And I think people are starting to realize, actually, I want commitment. Especially because commitment means being known. And we saw so much in COVID that people were lonely and had no support. There was no community. Especially in the cities, especially when your lifestyle is one of anonymity and mobility and not placing down roots and no commitment. And suddenly you're cut off from everybody and you realize, actually, I want those things. And so people are craving place. They're craving not simply somewhere to live, but they're craving to be known. They're craving a place to live where there's history, where there's roots, where there's commitment, where they know it and they are known. A place where there's memories and roots and where there's a community and a support system. I think this is a deeply human thing that we have not super prioritized as American culture. And now people are craving this this commitment, this rooted lifestyle as evidenced by the fact, or sorry, that we were created for. We were created as humans to be in a place and community with roots and commitment. Um, I think we see that with Adam and Eve. Right there. That this would be a, because people are looking for roots, something to cling to when things get hard, mm-hmm. something to believe in, some place where they can go to be known. Do you think that spreading the gospel, that this might be a good opportunity to spread the gospel because people are specifically looking for a place which has a dug-in community? Of course. A church. Of course. Almost all of them. Of course. You're absolutely right. This is an this is a fantastic opportunity, excuse me, to share the gospel because people are craving those things and we can say, well, hey, the church is a great place for that because we have a rooted community of people who are deeply committed to each other, not because we all are great and perfect people, but because we're all messy and broken, but we come together as as broken people to worship God. The church, I think, is is the little bastion of place where people f- can realize that human need to be known and to be rooted. Because I think we're created for it. Adam and Eve, right, they were created in the garden. They weren't created for, mobi- for mobility and anonymity and endless choice without commitment. They are created for commitment and rootedness and being known and building memories in a place, specifically a place where God lives. Because you cannot separate God from us. If you do, we die. So that's 
some of the differences, right, between what everybody is searching for in the world and what they actually need. They need God. They're searching for a place where God is. Because we lost it. Because when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, what humanity lost was that place where God lives, where they could live, where they can be known, where they have identity, where they have commitment. And so when God promises a land to Abraham, he is promising more than, I'm going to give you a little farmstead where you can you know, grow some crops. He's promising a return to the garden, in a sense. He's promising a place where Adam will be known, where Abraham will be known, all of his offspring will be known, where there will be memories and roots and commitment, that this will be a place where they will grow and God will be there because it says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. God will be with Abraham in this land. That's what he's promising is is a place, a rooted place where they have identity and where they can be with God. So the promise of the land, I think, is significant for Abraham and for Israel because the moment God talks to Abraham, what's the first thing God says? Leave. Genesis 12, the first thing that God says to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's Genesis 12.1. Abram was already rooted in a place. He already had family and history and commitment and roots. So why does God call him out of it in exchange for this land that he's going to show him? Well, I think because God is calling him out of this place that is, that is not actually what Abraham needs. Because God is not there. It's not the garden. It's not heaven, right? He's calling him to a land where God will be, where God will live with him. He's promising the land, the place that we were created for. And so Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham believed these promises. He said, God has something better for me than the place I'm already living. And he believed it. And he went and he lived in the land of promise as a sojourner, as a foreigner, living in tents in the land of Canaan before he had inherited it. But Hebrews tells us that even then he was looking forward to something even greater than Canaan. That he understood by faith that he was looking forward to a city that was built by God. A garden that was built by God. And so that's why Jerusalem is so important to Israel. Not simply, not only the land of Canaan, but Jerusalem itself. When you read the Psalms, and you read the Psalms of Ascent, or you read the Psalms in Exile, the things that they sing about 
They sing about the city, Jerusalem, the city that they, they long for, that they love, that they miss. Why Jerusalem? Why one city in particular? Because that's the closest they could get on earth to God. Because that's where the temple was. Because that's where God was dwelling. That Jerusalem was the city where everyone could come and live and be with God. It was probably the closest to the Garden of Eden that Israel was going to get. And that's why the temple was filled with references to Eden. Filled with imagery of the Garden. Because it's pointing to that. But it's also pointing forward to something greater. Because Jerusalem was still a city designed and built by humans. So Israel, too, was looking forward to something greater. And that's where we come in. Because the promise of land, of the land, helps us make sense of our own, our own lives in this world. Because we're defined similarly to how Israel was defined in the wilderness. Because Israel was a people defined by being on the way. Right? They weren't at the land of Canaan, but they were going there. They were going to the land of promise. They were, in a sense, homeless. But in another sense, they had a home that God had prepared for them, and they were just on the way there, being led by God, like we talked about in our Exodus sermons. And so that helps us make sense of, of our lives in this world. This world is not our final destination. It is not the land that we're looking forward to, because we are inheritors by faith of the promise of land, of a home of a place where we will have community and roots and commitments and identity and history, history that will last longer than this life has ever lasted because we're going to live forever in God's home. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're moving towards, that this promise to Abraham means a lot to us, and it should mean a lot to us, especially when we feel how rough this world is and how not our home this world is because we're looking forward to something greater and I think we can follow Abraham's footsteps in a sense right we can say well we have left the world behind we have come out of Ur we've left family and friends and everything else behind because we're on the way to something greater because we believe God we believe his promises so that's my my lecture. <laughs> um, hopefully that helps us begin to see just how real and meaningful these promises are, not just for Abraham, not just for Israel, but for us as we look forward to what God has in store for us. Um, that's all the time we have for today. I, I, Charlie, I saw your hand, but we can talk afterwards if that's okay. Um, well, let's pray and, and close up for today. Lord God, we thank you so much for all that you provided us with. We thank you that you have blessed us with these promises, that we have become inheritors of not because we earned anything, but Lord, by faith, you have brought us in. You've united us to Christ. You've promised all the same things to us that you promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Lord, we thank you that we know you will fulfill them because you are the God who fulfills his promises. So as we come to worship you this morning, may we worship you in faith and in truth. And may you be glorified, and may we grow to be more like you. 
We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.